Um, it is a great privilege to be with you guys, um, just to be encouraged and be reminded of the truth of the gospel. And thanks for everyone who's up here leading in worship. Um, a part of me was just enjoying so much sitting back there worshiping that I was going to say it's okay to go ahead and roll through without me getting up and sharing. But we do need to hear the gospel regularly. And a few weeks ago, my wife and I watched a movie um, many of you have probably seen before called Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. And this is a story about a young boy named Oscar Shells who's um, 12 years old and he lives in New York City. And the movie begins and Oscar has a great relationship with his dad. His dad is played by Tom Hanks. Um, and the first opening scenes of the movie just show you how much Oscar really binds and connects with his father. Um, and then, in an awful series of events, his father dies in the terrorist attacks at 9-11. And young Oscar's world is destroyed. And the remainder of the movie, really in a, in a kind of sad and depressing unfolding of a story, we follow young Oscar trying to make sense not only of the unbelievable pain that he is experiencing, which he doesn't have categories for and doesn't have a paradigm through which to understand it, but also the unexplainable evil which he articulates, I can't understand why someone who didn't even know my dad would kill him. And the rest of that movie is him seeking to make sense of that. A desperate search and struggle to know why does evil and suffering exist with no logical explanation. The movie um, really hit me at a number of levels. One, because a part of my own story was waking up um, when I was 13 years old, the first day of spring break, to find out my father had died of a heart attack. It wasn't the same as Oscar Shell's story, but I was in his shoes, in a sense, seeking to make sense as a 13-year-old boy who loved his father of why in the world would this happen? There seems to be no good and logical explanation. Throughout history, philosophers have tried to make sense of the world in which we live. The questions such as evil and suffering and is there any meaning to this life? Is there any reason to hope in the future? And they could go on and on and on forever. But the good news for us today is that the God who created and sustains all things in this universe has actually told us what's wrong with this world. He hasn't simply told us in a factual manner, but he's actually giving us a story. A story which not only is the most important story in all of history, but actually explains our own stories. And today we're going to take a few, moment, a few moments to look at the last chapter in that story that God has given us. The last chapter which reveals to us what the world is going to look like when God has it exactly the way he wants. Printed on the insert in your bulletin is a passage from Revelation chapter 22. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the angel showed me, speaking of the apostle John who was receiving this vision, showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. 
night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What is this a picture of? This is a picture of the future city of God. But this isn't just any ordinary city. This is a very, very unique city. This is a garden city. And if you're familiar with the story at all, as you read here in the last chapter of the story, immediately triggers should go off of, wait a minute, this sounds vaguely familiar to something else in the story that God has given us. The picture we see here of the garden city of God, the future city that is to come, immediately takes us back to the beginning of the story where God explained to us his reason for creating all things out of nothing by the word of his power, the heavens, the earth, the land, the sea, and even the pinnacle of his created work, which was us, his image bearers. He created everything by the word of his power for his glory, for his glory to be manifested in his creation, which was to be a blessing to his people. In the beginning, when God created everything out of nothing, when he created Adam and Eve in his image, where did he put them? He put them in a garden. A garden paradise. Very much like the picture of the city that we see in Revelation 22. He put them in a garden where a river ran through the middle and gave life to everything therein. He placed them in a garden where there was a tree of life in the midst of that garden. God created a wonderful and beautiful universe to be a blessing for his people and for his glory to be made known. So what happened? Neither the picture we see at the beginning nor the picture we see at the end adequately describes the situation we find ourselves in in this world where Oscar Shales is wrestling like crazy to figure out the unexplainable evil and suffering that's inevitable in this broken world. Well, God tells us in his story that Adam and Eve decided, as Pastor Brown explained earlier, that they would rather be independent. Instead of worshiping God and living in and out of their relationship with him, they decided, you know what, it would be better, my life would work well if I actually took matters into my own hands if I sought my own meaning and happiness by being my own master. And when they did, when they rebelled against their good and loving God, everything was ruined. Instead of a blessing, everything was cursed. Instead of living in and out of the relationship that they had with their creator that told them who they were, they found themselves naked and full of shame. Immediately, the picture we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that all the blessings that God gave to his people and his good creation were now deeply affected by the curse. The deepest and most profound brokenness existed in our deepest and most personal relationship, which is our relationship with our creator. Immediately upon eating the fruit, when God showed up in the garden, Adam and Eve ran and hid from him. Their relationship with themselves was also broken. Their eyes were opened and They were filled with shame and fear and guilt. Their relationship with one another was now broken. When God said, what have you done? Adam actually blamed his wife instead of standing up for her. And their relationship with nature 
instead of going out and being fruitful and multiplying, now sickness, disease, pain, suffering, and ultimately death has come upon God's good creation. This is a complete disaster, the picture we see in Genesis chapter 3. What was meant to be a place of overflowing blessings and glory has now become a broken world filled with mourning and tears and pain and death. But the good news of the gospel is that this isn't the end of the story. Because God showed up in that garden where Satan thought he had won an ultimate victory and said, evil will not have the final word. Because I'm going to send a redeemer who will make all things new. It goes on to tell us that the first thing that God did in his plan of redemption after the fall was he graciously removed Adam and Eve from the paradise garden where he originally placed them. And why did God do that? Why does it tell us in Genesis 3 verse 24 that God drove man out of the garden and blocked his way to the tree of life? He blocked access to the tree of life. Because God knew that if they went and took from the tree of life and they ate of its fruit so they would live forever, now in this cursed and broken and sinful condition, that would not be heaven, but rather hell. See, the DNA of sin that brought the curse upon creation is selfishness. A complete and utter obsession with self Instead of living for God's glory and for service of our neighbors, sin turns everything on our own hearts so that we are ultimately obsessed with our own needs and desires. And so God said, you have to leave. And he blocked access to the tree of life as a gracious and merciful act on his part. And so what did man do? Immediately upon being removed from the garden, what did Adam and Eve do and their descendants? They sought to build a city. They sought to build a city. And that shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because they were created in the image of a relational God. We're created for relationships. And God told Adam and Eve before the fall, what? Be fruitful and multiply. We were always intended to be city builders, to come together, live in community, pull our resources together for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. So of course, even fallen and sinful, they sought to build a city, but towards what end? Genesis 11 tells us exactly towards what end. They, they said in Genesis 11 verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Let's go build a city, a powerful and mighty city. Why? For our own glory. Let us make a name for ourselves. Instead of of building a city where God's glory would be manifested, they said, you know what? We need glory for ourselves. And left to ourselves without God's gracious intervention in our lives, this is the picture of humanity. Broken, fallen, driven out of the garden, longing to return, seeking to make a name for ourselves by consuming and abusing and using all the resources at our disposal. 
But the good news of the gospel was that is not the end of the story either. Because God tells us in Revelation 21 that there's a day coming when He will, for a fact, wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. For the former things have passed away. All the effects of the curse one day will be completely removed. How is that possible? Is this just a mere fairy tale without any basis of reality? No. This is an absolutely true picture of the future reality for God's children because because God's affection for His children is far superior to the evil which we introduced to His creation. His affection for His children is far superior to anything that we could ever ask or imagine. For before the foundation of the world, God chose us to be redeemed in the person and work of His Son, our Lord Jesus. And in the fullness of time, He sent His Son, who left His place of glory and paradise with His Father, to come down and take the form of a servant and willingly go to the cross in order to redeem us, as Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from what? He redeemed us from the curse. He redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And only because of the Father's affection and the Son's willingness to come and pay the penalty due our sins for us, can we stand here today with a picture of the future city reality for God's children? And what do we notice in this future city, this future garden city of paradise? What we notice is that every aspect of the sin and the curse that came into creation has been removed. God's relationship with His people has been restored. It says that God is in the city and that He will see His people face to face. No longer will we be naked, afraid, and hiding. It says that our relationship with ourselves will be restored. No longer running around frantically and anxiously seeking to make a name for ourselves. His name will be on our forehead and He will tell us exactly who we are. We will live in community with one another where we love and sacrifice and serve our neighbor. And we see our relationship with nature restored for there will be no sickness, disease, or death for the former things will have passed away. When we say this is unbelievable, it literally is. As Paul explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man even imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. We can't even imagine it. We can't even imagine what it's going to be like. So the question I must ask for us today is, do you love Him? Do you love Him? Paul said, no no one can imagine what God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, in a sense, we can answer that with humility of saying, 
Yeah, when I examine my own heart, as we confessed earlier, no, I, I don't love him as I should. But the good news is, the basis of your relationship with him isn't on your merit, but his love and affection for you. So when I ask, do you love him, what I'm asking is, has your heart been melted and changed by the picture of Christ on the cross for you? Is that a personal reality that defines who you are? Is it a true reality that moves your heart every single day and week when you come back here to worship? If it's not, and you say, you know, I'm not really sure I'm buying all of this story of redemption and Jesus coming to give us life so we don't have to make a name for ourselves on our own, then not only would I encourage you to consider to think through the implications of the gospel, but I would say if you think you can find life on your own, then hurry and go try. Because the gospel will not be tried and found wanting. If the resurrection is true, then there is no one else to whom we can find life than our Lord Jesus. And if it's not, if the resurrection is not true, then we're fools and we're wasting our time. If it is true, and if your heart has been melted and your life changed by the reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus then how should this picture affect us right now? How should the picture of our future home and future city affect the way we live now, today, in this city? I think there are two implications that we need to think through. And the reason we need to think through these things is because we must understand that this picture is not simply a future reality, which it is. But one chapter earlier, God tells us that he who is seated on the throne... Right now, our Lord Jesus, who lives and reigns, says, I am presently, currently making all things new. Right now, today. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul explains to the Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ, remember, at one time you were separated from Christ and you had no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ and... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints. And what's the point? Paul is saying, understand now, not only do you have a future reality and inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, but you are currently, presently, right now, members and fellow citizens with the saints of the city of God. As citizens of the heavenly city, I think there are two important implications for us right now. And the first is resist the pull of the earthly city. What is the pull of the earthly city? The same that it's always been in every earthly city ever since Genesis 11. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. We don't have to go and make a name for ourselves. Why? Because his name is written on our foreheads. I don't have to work myself to death, slaving away to make a certain amount of money to earn the respect and opinion of other people because I have a Father in heaven who says, you're my son whom I love and with you I'm well pleased. His name is written on our foreheads. Therefore, we have an unshakable identity. We have free access to the water of life so that we will never ever thirst again. We can stop running aimlessly on the hamster wheel of the earthly city, seeking to satisfy that thirst, seeking to quench the longing 
to earn and secure an identity for ourselves that enables us to go to sleep and not be anxious and restless. The second implication of this picture of the heavenly city is that as citizens, now we should be about the business of wiping away tears. We should be about the business of comforting those with the comfort that we have received. Notice in the vision that we receive in chapter 22 that now we're not blocked from the tree of life, but we have free access to the tree of life. And what grows on the tree of life? Leaves which provide healing for the nations. Healing for the nations. You know what that means? What does every single person born in sin in this broken world need in need of healing from? Their sin. And the only thing that can cure their brokenness, the only thing that can give them life is not a better job, it's not a better 401k, it's not a better looking spouse or children who obey, but the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can heal their brokenness. One of the things that was interesting in the movie Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close is that Oscar Shells, in his search to make sense of his father's death, goes into his closet one year to the day after his father died. He had not gone in there in the previous year. And he's looking around in his dad's closet and he's smelling his clothes and he climbs up on a chair and finds this vase that he had not seen before and he's seeking to grab it and the vase slips and it busts on the ground. And he gets down and he notices there's a little key card, a little key holder pouch with a key in it. And the only thing written on it is the last name Black. And so immediately this puts him off on a scavenger hunt to find where does this key belong? With the hope and desire that if I can find where this key belongs, maybe it'll allow me to hold on to my dad a little bit more, make a little bit of sense of what happened. So he set out to go visit every person in the city of New York with the last name Black. And it chronicles him visiting all of those families. And after his journey is over and it did not materialize the way he expected, he's sitting down talking to his mom. And he said, you know what I realized, Mom? While I'm going out and meeting all of these people because I'm hurting so bad, trying to make sense of my dad's death, what I realized is that every single person and family that I met has experienced loss and suffering. Everyone. There's nothing more inevitable in this world than suffering. It's not logical and it doesn't make sense. And it'll come upon you with a sneak attack. As members of the heavenly city that have had our relationship with our Father restored by the blood of Christ, we are to go about wiping away the tears of our neighbors who are suffering with the good news of the gospel. And that's been God's plan and intention all along to make all things new. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, this is an amazing passage as we think about our call in the earthly city as members of the heavenly city. He says to the church, the love of Christ controls us. We have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, for the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is from God, who through Jesus Christ has reconciled us to himself and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are his ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us, so we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you understand what Paul is saying there? He said, not only has God brought us back to himself and made us sons and daughters and members of the heavenly city, but now he has given us the ministry of reconciliation that we are his ambassadors. We are the hands and feet of Jesus called to go and wipe away tears in this broken and fallen world. Thinking about this calling and reality, I called up a friend of mine who's a member at Hope, and she's a nurse at Levine Children's Hospital, and she works on the oncology floor. And I called her up, and I said, Jill, um, I I just got to ask you, how can you work in that place? Help me make sense of how you can go into that hospital every day and see these children suffering from cancer. How can you sit with them when they receive the news from the doctor that the chemotherapy is not working? How does it not drive you to utter despair and cynicism? And she said, you know, Matt, you would expect there, that hospital, would be nothing but a place of mourning and pain and tears and death. She said, but it's not. She said, I actually see God's hand at work in miraculous ways. That because he's called me to himself and given me an understanding through his story, which explains all stories, I can see that even in the most hopeless of situations, there's still hope. And so she literally wipes away tears every single day because of the present reality of the blood of Jesus shed for her. I also called Jill up because even though I've lived in Charlotte for six years and even though I've been ordained as a pastor for four, I've never been to Levine before last November. It's easy for us all to say we hate hospitals, and I don't mind going to see families who have new babies when that's an exciting, joyful time, but we don't like going to the bedside of someone who's going to die. And knowing that a children's hospital exists because there's so much suffering and sadness and pain, in a sense, I sought to avoid it. But on November 17th of last year, my wife and I went to the hospital um, filled with excitement and joy. Um, for the delivery of our second little girl. Without any warning or expectation of complications, our daughter was born, and instead of being able to hold her and kiss her and tell her I love her and take pictures of her, she was taken immediately to the intensive care unit at Levine. Broken and having no idea what the heck is going on, the first thing we heard from a doctor the next morning was he walked in our room and he said, there's something seriously wrong with your daughter. They didn't have answers for why she wasn't responding. And to say I was broken would be an understatement. For 
it seemed like days after days we sat in the intensive care unit and listened to doctors really in a sense, and I don't say that critically, uh, approach our daughter like a science project, trying to figure out what's going on, running test after test after test and giving information. And after two days, with no more information than we had when she was born, I was sitting in the NICU one night, my wife and I, and the doctor who had the rounds that evening came by, and he was reading off the numbers and reports and checking her temperature and after running through some basic stuff and not having any real answers, he turned and he said, um, let's get over here together and let's pray for her. He didn't know I was a pastor. He didn't know I was a believer. There was no sign on Mary Rachel's um, little container thing that said her parents are Christians. This man, this doctor who's super educated, who's gone to school for years and years, more than I have, to figure these things out, called his nurses together and he prayed. And he prayed to the great physician. And he acknowledged publicly there that night, Lord Jesus, all healing that takes place in here only comes about through your hands. But thank you that because of your resurrection, we have a promise that one day there's not going to be any more pain and suffering and tears. And I'm going to tell you something, that even though we didn't walk away with any more answers about what was wrong with our daughter, I had a sense of peace for the first time in three days that allowed me to go to sleep. That doctor, who's my brother in Christ, helped wipe away my tears by placing my hope in the great physician. And that's God's plan and intention for us as citizens of the heavenly city to be reminded over and over again in the midst of the suffering and brokenness in which we find ourselves to remind us that this isn't the end of the story, that we are not what we will be, that our Lord Jesus, who willingly went to the cross for our sake and rose victoriously from the grave, told us and continually reminds us, I am going to prepare a place for you, and I will return. I will return and take you to be with me to a place of glory where evil and suffering will not exist where there will be no no more curse because after the last tear falls we will see that it is caught in the palm of the giver of life and the lover of all who willingly went to the tree of death to take our curse so that we can have free access to the tree of life who hung on the cross and experienced cosmic thirst so that we forever can have free access to the river of life where we will never ever thirst again. Who hung on that cross in the darkest and most unexplainable suffering this world has ever known and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that when the last trumpet sounds, we can hear, welcome home, my son.